you don't get to run the world for as long as rich white guys have without being pretty wily. And some of their best and wiliest work has been on the golf course. Let's just start by saying that that's not me. I love golf. That's Malcolm Gladwell. And in 2017, he made it pretty clear that he's got some issues with the sport. There's no denying it. Golf still has a PR problem. Given the game's checkered history with inclusion and the way it's still perceived as a game for rich white men, it should always be willing to listen to outside voices, especially bright, influential thinkers with big followings like Malcolm Gladwell. So I want us to listen back to Gladwell's episode and parse through his criticisms, find out which ones are off base, and see where he actually has a point. I'm Dylan DeChair, and this is The Drop Zone. I'm here with my Drop Zone co-host, Sean Zock. And Sean, I want you to start off by telling me, what do you know about Malcolm Gladwell? Really? I just know he's a smart dude and he kind of monopolized the 10,000 hours theory that you just have to do something repeatedly forever and ever uh, to get become an expert at it. Hello, hello, loyal revisionist historians. Malcolm Gladwell here. I've read some of Gladwell's books. I've listened to a bunch of his podcasts. But he re-entered my mind a couple weeks ago when there was a Twitter post that broke out suggesting that the Presidio Golf Course in San Francisco would be better used as a public park. Mm. Um, Gladwell chimed in. He wrote on Twitter, liberate the golf courses of America. In other words, get rid of golf and reclaim the courses. We're all supposed to keep six feet apart, which is really difficult when everyone trying to get some fresh air is crowded into the same sidewalk. Meanwhile, there are massive tax-subsidized private golf courses in the middle of every American city full of beautiful green spaces that are totally empty. Well, Sean, what did you think of this? Well, I got really fired up, mainly because I love the Presidio golf course. I don't want anyone to touch it. Dylan, uh, I have played it. Have you played it? I've been to the Presidio, but I've not played the golf course. Yeah, a lot of people have been to the Presidio because it is a gorgeous park in the northern part of San Francisco. It's very close to Golden Gate State Park. The Presidio Golf Course takes up 149 acres. The Presidio at large, 1,491 acres. So the golf course, 10% of this gigantic park that is a public course. It gives reduced rates to San Francisco local golfers. Like it was very cool, that picture that went viral of people sitting setting up a picnic in the fairway but they might as well have done it somewhere else on the Presidio too. Like, I think the theory here, like you could add another six blocks of Central Park on the north side. It doesn't mean that Strawberry Fields won't be as crowded as it always is. So I I just get really fired up when uh, Gladwell lumps all of golf and all of parks into this, you know, one bucket. We love the idea of golf being more public and more accessible. So we love places like the Presidio. But anyway, after Gladwell posted this picture, he actually reposted his original podcast episode, which was called A Good Walk Spoiled, uh, because as he said, it's one of his most popular and divisive episodes ever. So it's pretty simple, Sean. I want us to walk back through Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. I want to show you 10 places where I think he got golf wrong. And then I want to talk about three places where I think he actually made some strong points. All right. In a minute, we're going to play it again just to get the golfers riled up one more time. (sighs) My first point, Sean, is that not every golf course is a Los Angeles country club. I have a friend who lives in Brentwood, 
on the west side of Los Angeles, between Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. My friend's street dead ends on San Vicente Boulevard, one of the central east-west corridors in L.A. His basic problem here, it's about as first world as they come, right? When he goes to visit L.A., he crashes in his buddy's guest house. It's in one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. And on the other side of San Vicente is this absolutely gorgeous golf course one of the many private country clubs that L.A. is famous for. Likes to go running, but when he goes running, he wants more options. But the thing is, most golf courses are not like Brentwood Country Club or L.A. Country Club. They're not situated in the middle of super expensive, densely populated neighborhoods. Most golf clubs do not cost six figures to join. Most golf courses are not even in cities. Sean, this representation of golf falls a little short. Yeah, it is slippery slope, number one, for Gladwell, because I don't play golf at these places. You don't get to play golf at these places. You and I play 30 rounds of golf a year, and we're nowhere near places like this. So it is not a good representation of what golf courses at large are like. Well, what's funny is we actually were very near some of these courses. We went out to the Genesis Invitational uh, earlier this year. We stayed in Pacific Palisades, and uh, we actually went for some runs we were covering the event, I should say, at Riviera Country Club, which is very much like one of these places. But we were working, not playing there. But we did go for some runs. And one of Gladwell's gripes is that there's nowhere else to run around there. Not really true, Sean. We went to some beautiful places on our runs. Will Rogers State Historic Park is just three miles away. I found this like kind of a strange gripe. The one near my friend's house is called Brentwood Country Club, and it has a tall chain-link fence around it, which goes almost all the way out to the street, leaving just this narrow, rocky dirt track. There's no sidewalk. And since there aren't a lot of places to run in Los Angeles, tons of people run around the Brentwood Country Club on that narrow dirt track. I look at Google Maps today, right? You look at Google Maps, and the large majority of what you look at is gray neighborhoods. And the beaches are like tan, and the ocean is blue, and golf courses are green, and, and state parks are green. So when you look down at Brentwood Country Club, it's green with gray around it. You zoom out a little bit, and you've got Riviera Country Club, which is also green. So it's like, darn, the only green area here is golf courses. You zoom out just a little bit more, and you start to see Rogers, that Will Rogers State Park, mm-hmm. and you zoom out, and you zoom out, and you zoom out, and you zoom out, and this thing is absolutely freaking massive. So <laughs> my man Gladwell has decided that he wants to run towards the country clubs, and he gets upset when he runs into the country clubs, whereas if he just ran to the west, go west, young man, <laughs> he would have ran into one of the biggest state parks in all of California. So... My guy just has a, a directionality problem. Yeah, and and I think that he could also just run downhill. Eventually, you get to the beach. That's where we did some running, which I loved. It's nice and flat. Uh, but he also gets to this other issue, which is number three on my list, which is that if private golf courses weren't golf courses, they probably wouldn't be public parks. And there's one thing that always bothers me every time I run that route. Why do all the runners of West Los Angeles have to squeeze into this narrow, rocky little track when there's a huge, magnificent park just on the other side of the fence? Gladwell wants to be able to run on this nice golf course, right? But he also wants it then to be taxed at its highest and best use, which we'll get to later. But that essentially means it would be made into apartment buildings to maximize value. 
So if the golf course was turned into housing, he still wouldn't be able to run on it because it wouldn't be a nice park. <laughs> Unless he likes running upstairs. Yeah, I mean, but he's he's made it clear he does not like the city streets. But if it were seized by the city and turned into some sort of public park, then suddenly the city would be losing more money. Those surrounding houses would lose some of the value they have of being on a golf course. And, you know, if the taxes were the whole problem in the first place, things are just getting worse. So I think Gladwell's gripe here is just kind of a gripe and not really one with a solution. No, definitely not. I think if anything, it would probably constrict those areas, would add more people to those areas if you just build up apartments. And even if you just build up parks, you're going to bring more people to that area. And I think at the at the core of all these Gladwell issues in LA specifically is a population density issue, not so much a, a golf course issue. There are a lot of people there, that's for sure. Which brings me to number four, Sean, which is that it's not actually the golf course's fault that there's no other green space around, right? Because one of Gladwell's issues is that the only green space around that part of LA, it's golf courses or cemeteries. Next time, I'm climbing the fence. Maybe we all should. But that's not the fault of the courses or the cemeteries. It's the fault of the city for allowing everything else to be turned into housing. And so I was thinking about an equivalent to this and say, Sean, that we had houses next to each other, right? Wow. And say I decided to build up a big house and then pave my entire yard, right? I've got a few cars. I've got to, you know, got to have some place to park them, right? Yeah, you definitely have a lot of cars. And you, on the other hand, keep your house nicely sized and you manicure a nice green lawn. So then mm. what if I suddenly say, Sean, you know, I've noticed there's just no real grass around here except the stuff that's on your property. So I think I actually deserve to come play on your lawn. So you you and Gladwell are very similar, and I'm just a reasonable <laughs> man with his nicely mown lawn. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I would like to, to move us in a slightly different direction okay. and share what I found online. Please. So there's this thing, there's this nonprofit company called the Trust for Public Land. And they have created this thing called ParkServe. It's a phenomenal website. It basically has mapped out all the parks in the country and they put them in the areas and they they take on layers of, of population density and they basically see how many people are within a 10 minute walk of parks. So like when I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's one of the best places in the country for public parks. 90% of the people in Madison, Wisconsin live within a 10-minute walk of public parks. That's really good. 12th best in the country. LA is 55th best out of the top 100 cities in the country. You'd think that's probably not that good. But really, Gladwell said it's one of the worst, which is actually, according to this data, a lie. Because 55th best out of 100 last I checked, is not one of the worst. Because middle of the road. Detroit, Jacksonville, San Antonio, they're all worse. Houston, Baltimore, Memphis, Louisville, Nashville, those are all worse than LA. So, Mr. Gladwell, I'm going to dive even a little bit further. He wants some of the courses in the Beverly Hills, Culver City area to be made public parks. He wants, if he really had his druthers, he'd make Brentwood Country Club a public park. Again, using ParkServe, that phenomenal website, the top five places in LA where another park would make immediate sense 
in that it would offer a park within a 10-minute walk that people don't have, those are all far, far north of Beverly Hills, the northern part of L.A., Granada Hills, the Encino area. So, again, the guy is not wrong that L.A. has a little bit of an issue here, but it's not a huge issue, and it's not even in the areas that he has picked out. Well, and the tricky thing is really when you get to that magical point where Brentwood Country Club would suddenly turn into a public park, which by you know Gladwell's later valuation would mean that L.A., the city, would have to buy it for like nine billion dollars <laughs> so anyway we'll get to that i want to move on to number five uh which is you know this whole idea that there are just too many golf courses in la in general or in san francisco this is actually more a point about the presidio in his world there's too many golf courses but we're a podcast of the people and we want to see people in general get access to golf courses so that it's not just the people that can play at Brentwood Country Club. All right. So Malcolm's on to something here. Okay. Because I think that there are plenty of golf courses. Like the golf world, especially in America, we hit our peak in terms of the total number of golf courses in the early to mid 2000s. This all followed the same trajectory of the Tiger Woods boom, Tiger mania. And now it is coming down and is kind of starting to level off around the same number of courses as the early to mid-1990s, prior to when Tiger Woods' professional career began. So, L.A. does not have the same number of like great public courses as San Diego and San Francisco. So really, again, this is an L.A. problem. When you think great L.A. public golf, well, there's not a lot. There's just a little bit too many private courses. Less great public ones. That's at least my take on this thing. So you're saying we don't need more golf courses. We just need to maintain accessibility. I can get down well, with that. Yeah. I mean, and I think Gladwell would agree with that because right now he continues to kind of like traipse around Beverly Hills and just kind of sees a bunch of country clubs everywhere. Yeah. Well, and then that's the impression that we get as listeners. So that's perfect transition to number six, Sean. Golf is not just for rich white guys. Gladwell calls it crack cocaine for rich white guys. But 75% of the country's golf courses are open to the public. Guess what the, well, I'm not going to make you guess. I'm just going to tell you. (laughs) The average greens fee on a weekend with a golf cart. So, you know, we're not talking twilight rates. We're not talking, you know, juniors before 7 o'clock. On a weekend at a public course, the average greens fee is $36, golf cart included. So there's a lot more golf courses that cost 20 bucks than there are courses that cost 200 bucks. Another fact about golf, rich people really, really like it. They're obsessed with it in a way that there just isn't any parallel for ordinary people. You know, there is this reputation that continues to uh, follow golf around, but there are a lot more places where it's affordable than there are where it's not. And when you look at the breakdown of junior golfers, it's a much more diverse group than it has been in the past. But still, you're absolutely right. The sport is still set up as a rich and white and male haven, and that is bad. We completely agree. We would love to see it more inclusive. But there's nothing actually wrong with the game itself, right? It's just the problems of society that are reflected in the game. Golf itself is an amazing way to get people into nature who wouldn't otherwise get outside. You know, it does any number of good things for us. 
So if the problem is that golf is too rich and too white and too male, then how would removing the low-cost accessible options help towards rectifying that problem? It wouldn't. Sean, number seven, Gladwell kind of seems to say that golf is essentially just a waste of time. I don't think he really means that. Gladwell's an avid runner. He's actually a very fast guy. So you'd think he would empathize with an activity that gets people outdoors, has people active. It's good for you mentally. It's good for you physically. Some studies have argued it actually extends your life if you keep playing golf. So I don't know. There's a lot of benefits that I think he would relate to. Yeah, unfortunately, he picks apart this sample set of CEOs who play a bunch of golf. The CEOs are playing around at least 37 times a year. <laughs> like You and I don't play that much, and we work at Golf Magazine, so these guys are playing a lot. But he goes on to, to further kind of equate what that means for their ability to work. And he says that if these CEOs are playing... 160 hours or more on the golf course, well, that's the equivalent of five and a half weeks of work. And uh, yeah, you know, that might be true if you just worked from sunup to sundown every single day, 365 days a year. But we know that that's very ignorant of the fact that most rounds of golf take place on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, even Friday afternoon, Thursday afternoon. You know who also spends a lot of time away from the office doing hobbies? CEOs who bowl and CEOs who surf and CEOs who work out in the morning and who mow their grass in the evening. Like he kind of like presents this world in which CEOs and CEOs who play golf should not be doing anything but working from sunup to sundown. It's not fair. Plus, you know, it takes a long time training to be a fast long distance runner, which is what Gladwell has spent a fair amount of time doing. Which is great. It's just funny that then he considers golf such an obvious waste of time when, you know, running takes up a whole lot of time too. Because serious golfers are super anal about their scores, we can actually quantify their obsession. In order to calculate their handicap, basically how well they're playing relative to other people at the country club, they all post their results on a database maintained by the United States Golf Association. So we have a record, and it's a goldmine. He and this grad student are looking at the top 1,500 CEOs. Of those, 363 have handicaps. And then he takes the top 10% of that group and says that those guys play 37 times on average. Good for but them. Really, awesome. we're just talking about then 36 out of 1,500 CEOs. So that's honestly probably a little bit lower than I thought. Yeah, 24% keep their scores into a handicap. I'm shocked that it's not 50%. That's actually, though, gets us to number eight because I think we need to give just a quick shout-out to the handicap system. Having a handicap does not, as Gladwell implies, mean you have an unhealthy obsession with golf. It just means that you keep track of your scores. Like, Gladwell is a runner. I would almost guarantee that he has Strava or, you know, Nike Running or some sort of app that tracks his performance I'm running. not even a runner and I keep track of my performance. Everybody does that. Yeah. So, you know, having a handicap is not a mean that golf is a dangerous habit. Um, and if it is, then you and I are in really bad shape. Yeah, we're in trouble and we don't play nearly as much golf as the whatever it is, the top 10 percent of golfing CEOs. To that point, Sean, the Bear Stern CEO is not a great representation of the average golfer. This is point number nine for me, and this is an important one because 
Gladwell goes so far as to connect golfer CEOs to the economic crash in 2008. In July of 2007, right when the crisis was beginning, the CEO of Bear Stearns would often helicopter out from Wall Street on Friday afternoons to his exclusive course in New Jersey to get a round in before sunset. Even when his company was collapsing, he couldn't stop playing golf. I think he would find a fair number of people cut out of work early on summer Friday afternoons. Probably not wow. just the CEO. Shoot us. Yeah, well, not us as much as we would probably like to, to be honest. But I don't think that Bear Stearns ran into the ground because its CEO was playing too much golf on Friday afternoons. It just seems unlikely to me. Well, you know who isn't a great representation of average golfers? That guy. CEOs. Yeah. At large. And yet, Gladwell uses them as the definitive group of golfers. The it's, group of people who play this game. Well, it's pretty bogus. There are 25 million of us. But again, Gladwell has a 40-minute podcast, and he wants everyone in the world to listen to it. You can't totally blame him for kind of, you know grabbing a hold of the most famous golfers uh, in the business space. The scary number, though, to me, Sean, is this 15.7 million. And that's the number of people who didn't play golf last year, but said that they are actually very interested in playing golf on a golf course. It's this like... Hopefully they listen to this podcast. Latent golfers. We would hope that they would listen to this podcast, not just Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. And that brings me to number 10, though, Sean, because this is an important point. Uh... And it's that golf courses are actually not a waste of space, which is the implication. Uh, golf courses mean a little bit more than just the total number of people that are on them at a given time. They actually preserve green space, which is a very good thing, especially in a population-dense place like L.A. It's all developed, which is you know why it's so tantalizing to say, man, I wish we had those country clubs. Mm. I mean, so... Gladwell gets into tax law, but it's actually not uncommon for large landowners of green space to get some sort of unique tax treatment uh, if in return they preserve that land as open space, you know, even if it's not always publicly accessible. So there's a lot of gray area here. There's a lot of tax law, but there is some value provided to the public, even though the public can't access the golf course. And I think that that is an important point. He's not a fan of golf. That's the bottom line. Anyone who is on the fence who thinks that Gladwell is one of the foremost theorists of our generation, they might be right about that, and he still might be wrong about golf. All right, but I do want to get to where, Sean, we do think we have some common ground, right? Because there are some points where I feel like, yeah, we probably would see eye to eye with Malcolm Gladwell. And point number one would be that these specific courses should probably be paying a little more in taxes. Let's do the math together. They should be paying $90 million. In fact, they're only paying $200,000 in property taxes. $90 million minus $200,000 is $89,800,000. That's how much the taxpayers of Los Angeles subsidize one of the swankiest country clubs in the world every year. Yes, 1%. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's hard for me to say exactly what they should be paying, but currently they're under this uh, Prop 13, which has them paying 1% of the property valuation from 1978. So it's like the ultimate grandfathering in. And 
you know, I don't know about Gladwell even admitted this was a back of the envelope calculation of one of his buddies that put LA Country Club's valuation at $9 billion. So even if that is an exaggeration, paying 200k in taxes, you know, it might be kind of low. So maybe there's a higher point where these clubs could still survive, preserve their history, preserve their open space, uh, but pitch in a little bit more so that, you know, everyone could feel a little bit better about this arrangement. Totally agree. And still just a California problem. Yeah. Well, still specifically a LA problem. You go out to the, you head out to the country, you know, I'm in a small town in Massachusetts right now. Land is less precious. Green space is less precious. You don't really have the same issue in the same way, but idea number two, Sean, where we could find some common ground with Malcolm Gladwell, maybe courses receiving tax breaks in this way should find a way to share more with the public. The home of golf, St. Andrews in Scotland, is open to the general public on Sundays. In Toronto, the fanciest golf club is Rosedale Country Club, right in the middle of the city. But the golf course is only private in the summer. The rest of the time, it's open to anyone who wants to go for a walk or play frisbee or go cross-country skiing. Um... This does happen other places. Malcolm Gladwell pointed out, grew up cross-country skiing in Massachusetts. I love doing it, but it doesn't seem like a realistic, probably off-season use for Brentwood Country Club in particular. I don't know, but maybe there's a way that courses could provide tea times to the public or one day a week, you know, have people bring their dogs out and just not run on the greens, but use the open space of the golf course. What do you think, Sean? Well, I just want to, you know, I have been a little bit mean to Mr. Gladwell to this point. I would like to give him a little credit. The area that he picked out, that Beverly Hills, Culver City type of area where Brentwood Country Club is, you know, if we did put a park in that area, if we took Brentwood, bulldozed it to the ground or just, you know, let land take over, it would rank among the top five areas that a park would enhance life for the most people. Like it's a very densely populated area it needs a park in one direction is one of the biggest state parks in the other directions are these golf courses so he's not completely wrong yeah and i think that there you know maybe there's some creative solutions that people in the community could come up with to bridge this gap between public and private in a a more satisfactory way Uh, because my third and final thing that i think i agree with mr gladwell on sean is that golf should continue to worry about this PR problem, this image problem. A lot of people are not pro-golf. They don't want courses reopening, for instance, during these coronavirus shutdowns. Even though you can socially distance on the golf course as well as just about anywhere, I don't know, people think that golf is just a useless thing reserved for a small subset of the population. And So even if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a good chance that you are already, you know, in favor of golf in general, but there's a lot of people that are not, which is why Gladwell's podcast was so important. Uh, Golf has earned its reputation over a long period of time. A lot of people feel the same way that he does. So I don't know, Sean, we've still got some stuff in the golf world to sort out. Yeah. Brentwood Country Club, maybe 
don't have barbed wire fences. <laughs> Maybe have something a little bit more welcoming. Maybe it's anything better than barbed wire. I mean, Gladwell called it East Germany-esque. It doesn't look that good. There is a narrow patch of dirt around which is not paved as a sidewalk. The vines that hang on this fence, they do encroach upon the road. So, like, he's not wrong about how it looks from the outside. On the inside, I'm sure it's absolutely gorgeous, and I'm sure you and I are not going to get invited to play there anytime soon. That being said, there's somewhere in the middle where we can meet and keep these golf courses, keep a lot of them open to the public, and also keep Mr. Gladwell happy as a runner and non-golfer. I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Golf courses, remember, be good neighbors because people are always going to be looking in through your fences. Thanks so much to Lee Finer, who expertly produced this week's episode. And we'll be back next week with an inside look at some of golf's greatest treasures and the fascinating ways that they change hands. For The Drop Zone, I'm Dylan DeChair. Thanks for listening.